Paul's letter to the Galatians, book of Galatians. We will look at chapter 5, starting at verse 13. And we will read through the end of the chapter, 13 through verse 25, 26 actually. Now hear God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. And you may all be seated and let us pray together as we come to God's word. Our Father, we pray for help this morning as we come to your word. We pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit in our minds and in our hearts to help us to understand what it is that you have revealed to us here and the importance of these truths that are revealed to us here. And Father, as always, we pray that we would not just be hearers and those who understand in our minds, but those who are convicted in our hearts so as to become doers of the Word, people who are more transformed at the end of our time in Your Word than we were when we came. Father, we pray, continue the work that You have begun in us through the power of Your living and active Word. Father, help us to be humble in reception of your word and help us to give you glory as we respond in the way that we live. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, you remember, we focused together from... Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on the great theme of love, biblical love, the love of God and its priority in our lives and in our church and its properties, all of those 15 things that Paul reveals to us that, that true love is and is not and how love needs to characterize our lives and our relationships with one another. And of course, we saw that at the, at the bottom line, at the, at the heart of all of those properties that Paul says that love is and is not, lies that question of whether or not in our hearts, in our lives, we're primarily focused on the needs of other people, as Paul commands us to be in Philippians chapter 2, right? Don't be concerned just with your own needs, but with the needs of others and put them in front of yourself, no matter what the cost to self, even as Jesus Christ is the model of who came and laid down his life in servitude and took upon himself the, the burden of obedience unto the cross. Are we focused primarily on the needs of other people or are we people who are primarily focused 
on the needs of self, on our own desires. That's what love is all about. That's what it all comes down to. And that's where all of the properties of love are born out of. Whether or not we're self-focused or other-focused. True love lays aside in order to love others. True love sacrifices, even at great cost. True love endures and is long-suffering as again exemplified and defined by the love of God in Jesus Christ. So today I want to follow up that same emphasis by digging into another portion of God's Word that we need to be in often in our Christian lives. This is another passage where we tend to become forgetful. We tend to need reminders and we tend to need God's Word to serve as a diagnostic tool of our hearts and our minds and our attitudes In Galatians chapter 5 is a perfect place for God's Word to do that. So I want to dig into this portion of Scripture here where Paul is teaching something very, very similar to the emphasis we looked at last week. And here he's highlighting for us how it is that we can live lives like that. How it is that we cannot be committed to selfish desires, but that we can be prioritizing the glory of God and the good of others in our lives. How do, you, how do you change your heart and make it able to do that? Verse 16 here of Galatians 5, Paul says that it all has to do with walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is God, who indwells us as His living temples and guides us and illumines our minds and convicts us of sin and of the truth of God's Word and sanctifies us. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so the inverse is always true, correct? If I find myself gratifying the desires of the flesh as they're defined here and Galatians chapter 5, from sexual temptation to enmity and strife and anger and all of the rest of those things, then that means I am not walking by the Spirit. I'm walking according to the desires of my flesh. So see, this is such a hugely, massively important aspect of the Christian life that sometimes we don't take into account. Walking by the Spirit... But it's something that a lot of Christians just struggle to understand and often struggle to apply. What does Paul mean when he urges us to walk by the Spirit? How do you do that? Those are the foundational questions that this passage answers for us and and starts to unpack for us and help us with. So jump right in with me there in verse 13 where Stan began the reading of chapter 5 as we begin to answer questions like that. Now the context of this letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in the province of Galatia in the first century world, the context is that there was a group of false teachers who were promoting this particular false teaching which shared some similarities with the issue that was taken up by the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. It was was kind of legalism where... Jewish believers in Jesus were telling Gentile believers in Jesus that the Gentiles in some way, shape, or form had to add something to their faith in terms of good works in order to gain salvation and forgiveness from sins and favor from God. Their salvation depended on what they did to adhere to Jewish customs like circumcision and the Old Testament laws and dietary restrictions and things like that. And in verses 12 through 14 of Galatians 5 here, Paul is absolutely disputing that legalism by arguing that we're called to freedom in Christ Jesus. That's the word he uses over and over, freedom, which emphasizes the great gracious nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel is the good news that that salvation is a free gift that you don't have to earn by doing good works. It just comes from God as a gift of His love. It doesn't depend on what we're able to do or not to do in order to earn it. But at the same time, Paul is insisting 
that this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ doesn't mean, now that we're Christians, a freedom from holiness or a freedom from our lives being conformed to God's holy law and His holy character and His holy nature. So he says in verse 13, You were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And we can just push the pause button right there and all ask ourselves in our minds, privately and quietly, in what ways this past week, or even this morning, have I turned my freedom in Christ into an opportunity for my flesh? In the kinds of ways that Paul lays out here that are common expressions of fleshliness in Galatians chapter 5. In what ways did I allow my mind to wander into impure thoughts? In what ways did I harbor bitterness towards my brother or sister? In what ways did I allow myself to say things that tore them down rather than things that built them up? Freedom does not mean freedom from holiness. And it certainly does not mean that we give ourselves permission for fleshly opportunity. But Paul says, instead of that, through love, serve one another. And that's a major anchor point in understanding Paul's whole definition of the whole gospel and the Christian life. The freedom that he's proclaiming doesn't mean freedom to live whatever way we want to live. In fact, it means the opposite. It means freedom from living according to fleshly desire, which leads to death. And freedom to live for the sake of the love of Christ and the love of God, which leads to everlasting life. So when Paul says freedom, he doesn't mean do it whatever way you want. He means freedom from having to secure your position before God by your own efforts. That's what you've been freed from. The tyranny of the law and trying to keep the law as the basis of becoming right with God. And it means freedom from the law's condemnation when doing it that way becomes obviously apparent that it won't ever possibly work. Freedom, in Paul's definition here, means the freedom of resting wholly and entirely in the work of Christ and in Christ himself and in the love with which he has loved us. And the question for us in this passage today is, are we doing that? The question to ask yourself is, Am I doing that? Am I really, really, truly resting in Christ? Or am I seeking to satisfy my soul outside of Christ somewhere and somehow with the things of this world or according to my own desires? Because if we're doing that, if we're satisfying our souls in self or or in the things of the world or, or in anything or anyone besides Jesus, then that is the source of fleshly living in our lives. That's where it comes from. And on the other side of the coin, our souls being holy and completely rested in Jesus is the source of all holiness and godliness in our lives. So see, very often Christians struggle with their growth and holiness or they stagnate in their growth and holiness. They, they fail to thrive And they remain infantile, they plateau, they remain immature because they're they're focused in their pursuit of holiness on the wrong thing. They're focused actually in their pursuit of holiness on themselves and all the benefits that holiness might bring to them. That's their only motivation. And that means that a desire for holiness will very easily get drowned out by all kinds of other selfish desires because they're focused on themselves. See how that works? I want to be holy if it's going to make me happier. And then all of a sudden your flesh and the devil and the world will say, well, you know what will make you even happier than holiness? All this stuff that you can see and feel and experience and you won't care about holiness nearly so much anymore. That's Paul's whole point here. It's that holiness is the product of the love of God in us, forging a love for God and for one another 
which causes us then to daily crucify all of the self-focused desires of our flesh. And so what Paul is saying is that when we rest in Christ, when Christ's blood and righteousness are our covering and not our own efforts, then our hearts are stirred up by the Holy Spirit to love God and to love one another. And that's what holiness looks like. True holiness and obedience in our lives cannot possibly be driven and sustained by self-serving motives. Self-serving motives are things like guilt or fear. If I don't do it, then this will happen to me. That can't sustain real holiness. Shame, pride, if I act holy or I become holy, everybody will be impressed with That cannot sustain true holiness. Greed, if I do it God's way, then he'll reward me with health and wealth and prosperity. Cannot possibly sustain true holiness, as is evidenced in the lives of all of those prosperity preachers who proclaim that it will, but then have very immoral lives very often, don't they? True obedience to God, true holiness in life is only driven by the love of God and the love for God, which is our heart's overwhelming response to all that He has done for us in Christ Jesus. And struggles with holiness and maturity in the Christian life indicate that we're not really resting in Christ and communing with Him as our soul's greatest priority. We're trying to find rest and satisfaction somewhere else, in something else, and with someone else. So that's what Paul is confronting here. He's echoing really what John says also in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3 when he says that this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. That's what it means to love God, that we keep His commandments, but he goes on and says something more, right? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and that His commandments are not burdensome. That it's what we want to do. This is the love of God. And the big question that we ask at that point and that Paul helps us to answer again here is how? How? How can obedience to God be not burdensome? Be desirous. Be pleasant. How can our lives become such that it's easier and easier for us to obey God because we want to more and more? Because our desires are changing from what self wants to what God wants. How can that happen? How do we get there? And the answer, of course, is if it's up to us, we can't. According to our own natural abilities and inclinations, it's just not possible in our make up as, as human beings. For us to get up in the morning and feel as much or more concern for the glory of God and the needs of other people as we feel for our own needs, that's utterly and absolutely beyond any power that we have intrinsic to ourselves. If the, if the Christian life means loving God and caring for others, even when that means not having any of my own needs met, just like Jesus did, or any of my own desires satisfied, or any of my own goals achieved, then that's hard, isn't it? And, and, in, and in fact, it's impossible for us. But see, the gospel is all about what God does for us, and also in us, and, and through us. And that's the freedom that Paul's talking about here in Galatians 5. He's proclaiming that through faith in Christ, and through the promises of the gospel, and through communing with Christ... God will change our hearts, our wills, our, our desires, so that more and more we crave nothing more than His glory. And that sounds great, right? But again, the question is, how does that happen? What's the key to becoming a person who loves God and, and puts others before self more and more? How can, you, how can you become a person who's not driven by your own sinful, selfish desires so much, but consumed more and more with seeing God glorified and with seeing other people's needs met no matter what the cost to self is? And the key, Paul reveals right there in verse 16, is learning to walk by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
He doesn't say you won't have desires of the flesh anymore. He says you'll have the strength not to carry them out and you won't do it. That's a pretty awesome promise, right? For all of us who see the sin in our lives and when we indulge in it, we hate it. For every Christian who wants so much to love and to glorify and to honor God, but their sin constantly is getting in the way, isn't it a great promise that not only did Jesus die so that the penalty for your sin is completely removed, but he's also daily supplying us with the sanctifying power to not carry out the desires of the flesh. He's not only given us victory over sin on the cross, he's given us victory over, over sin's power in our lives that we can lay hold of every single day. And so in those times when the Christian life seems just impossible, it's too hard, I can't, I can't do that, I, you, I can't be expected to do this. You say, well, well Jesus says that uh, to have bitterness and hatred in your heart towards someone is the same as murdering them. Jesus says, well, to, to look upon a woman with lust is the same as committing adultery with her. He said, that bar is too high. I can't meet that. It's true, you can't meet that bar. You can't clear that bar in your own strength. But the Holy Spirit can. And He lives in you. And if you walk by His power, you absolutely can. So this is how it works, right? The command to love God by living in holiness and loving one another with the same self-sacrificing love with which Christ loved us, that's a high bar. But see, it's not some new legalistic burden that God lays on our weak backs. It will become burdensome if we try to do it in our own strength and for our own purposes. But the will of God is... That when we walk by the Spirit, love for God and love for others will freely be forged in us and pour out from us. So the reality is this. According to God's design, true life consists in loving God by submitting to Him in holiness and in loving others by considering them more significant than ourselves. That's what true life is. Contrary to what your flesh says. Your flesh says, no, true life is getting to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. That's the lie of the devil that leads to destruction. He told that lie to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, God didn't want you to just do it all his way. You can do whatever you want. You can do what's right in your own eyes. You can eat the fruit if you want to eat the fruit. And boom, death came into the whole world. True life means loving God. And loving others. The whole law hangs on those two commands, Jesus says, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and love others as yourself. Prioritize them, consider them more significant than yourself, just like Jesus did, Philippians chapter 2. And people who try to love like that without relying on the Holy Spirit are always going to wind up trying to fill their own emptiness meet their own needs, make, them, make, make their own selves happy rather than being filled with the fullness of God and sharing the overflow with others, which is what true life is. So the reality is that because of sin, none of this is easy for us. Love isn't easy for us because of the reality of sin. We try to, we try to do love in our own strength, right? And we try to do love for our own purposes, which is actually the, the contradiction of what real love is. I think it's... So often it's so easy for us to talk about the people we love. Think about how you use that. I love that guy, right? I love that person. But what we mean by that is the people who do good things for us are the ones that we love. The people who make me feel good, that's the person I really love. And of course, you know, obviously we do love it when people are lovely towards us. There's nothing wrong with loving loveliness. But I think that all too often when people are not lovely towards us, it is our fleshly instinct selfishly to convince ourselves that we're not required to love them. But Jesus clearly said, love the unlovely. And put it on display, did he not? With the lepers, with the poor, with the beggars with the outcasts, 
I think we let ourselves get away with only loving the people that we selfishly deem as lovely. Or only loving people if there's going to be a surefire return on our investment into their lives. And we're going to actually get back more dividends than what we put in. Or scratching someone else's back just so that they'll scratch ours. We, we struggle with that fleshly stuff a lot, if we're honest. But true biblical, Christ-like, sacrificial, count the cost without regard for self, that kind of love, that's not easy for us. In fact, it's impossible for us. But the good news is that it isn't primarily our work that produces that kind of love in us. It's God's work. And so what we need to do, Paul says, is learn to walk by the Spirit so that it's not the desires of our own flesh that we're carrying out. Instead, we're being driven by the love of God to love Him and to love others. That's how it works. And that begs three important questions that we've got to ask with regard to this text. First, what does it mean? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And then second, why is it so important that we do that? And thirdly, how? Very practically, how do we walk by the Spirit so that we're not gratifying the desires of our flesh all the time? What, why, and how? Simple questions, and the text helps us with the answers. So the first one, of course, is the the most foundational. What does Paul mean when he says that we're to walk by the Spirit? And there are two verses in the context of this passage today that shed light on on the what, what it means to walk by the Spirit. The first one is verse 18. Look at it with me. Where Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the second is down in verse 22. Look there where Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and all of the rest. Walking by the Spirit means being led by the Spirit so that our lives produce the fruit of the Spirit. So think about that first thing. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul doesn't say, notice, if you follow the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? He doesn't say that. Well, you might say, well, it's the same thing. What's the difference? One implies the other, but really it's a big difference. Paul places all of the emphasis here on the Spirit's work of leading and not on our effort in following, even though we must make some effort to follow. But the emphasis is on what God is doing, like what the locomotive is doing at the front of the train to pull all of the cars that are following. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's the Spirit's work predominantly, not ours, that's being emphasized here. We can't follow in our own strength. We can't simply say, what would Jesus do, and then set out to do it with the strength that we have in us. If we're going to get there, it's going to have to be by relying and depending on the power that, that God provides to us. So walking by the Spirit means first staying hooked up to the divine power source that enables us to go where He leads. If your whole existence in life is to be an oscillating fan and you're sitting there in the living room and and everything about you is, is intended to just blow cool air across the room and you're not plugged into the outlet, you can say to yourself all day, let's go, let's get it done and nothing's going to happen. The fan's got to be plugged in. The Christian life has got to be plugged into the power source and led by the Holy Spirit because the only other option is self-reliance and self-reliance is always flesh reliance. And as we're going to see here today, relying on the flesh is obviously never good because our flesh is, is dominated still by the sin that remains in it. So the way to, the way to diagnose whether we're being flesh-reliant or spirit-reliant is really, really easy when you come to this passage, which is why we need to come to it very often, like print it out in big letters and put it on your wall very often. 
or, or keep a copy in your pocket or your purse, the way to diagnose whether you're being flesh-reliant or spirit-reliant is whether there's a preponderance of fleshly deeds coming out of you or a preponderance of Holy Spirit fruit being born out of you. And then the other thing that Paul says there in terms of what walking by the Spirit means is that it means our lives bearing that fruit of the Holy Spirit. And there again, right, you, you can see that it's the Spirit's work that's emphasized. Because fruit doesn't bear itself, it is born. In John 15, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And the word abide is an ongoing action word. It's not something you do once and then the fruit will be born forever. You have to constantly, continually, daily, minute by minute, be abiding in Christ and then fruit will be born. And if you're not, don't be surprised that fruit isn't born. And if there's no fruit being born and you're struggling with holiness, it's because you're not abiding in Christ. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Your pursuit of holiness will amount to nothing apart from regularly, daily, consistently abiding in Christ. And as soon as you say, well, I did that enough this week. I, uh, I abided in Christ on Monday, all day Monday. And now the rest of the week's mine. All the fruit's going to wither up and dry up. And you're done. So fruit doesn't form itself by its own effort on the vine, right? How is the fruit of holiness born in our lives? It's born by abiding in Christ. How is the fruit of the Spirit born in our lives? By the Spirit in our lives, Paul says. God the Holy Spirit bears this fruit in us of heart dispositions, which lead to outward attitudes or actions rather, heart dispositions of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and all the rest. That's what's going to undergird everything that happens in your life, even in response to other people's sin and mistreatment of you. So walking in the Spirit means abiding in Christ, in the vine, from which the power of God's Spirit flows into our lives as the Holy Spirit abides in us. So the answer to the first question, what is walking in the Spirit, the answer is it's being led by the Spirit's power as He abides in us and, and His direction, His wisdom to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the work of God's Spirit is what's emphasized. And, and at the same time, there is a, a responsibility for us here, isn't there? And this is where Paul highlights the battle, the warfare that's raging in us. Verse 17 the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. They're at war with one another. You feel it? You feel how you have fleshly desires to do things your way, to respond when somebody's nasty to you, to treat people certain ways? And then there's, then there's this love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self, that, that stuff, and they're at war. They're antithetical. They're opposed to keep you from doing the things that you want. The desires of your flesh are trying like crazy to keep you from doing what your new man in Christ wants to do in honoring God and loving others. And the desires of the Spirit in you are working like crazy to keep you from doing what, what the, the flesh wants to do and the sin that remains in your flesh wants to do. Spirit and flesh are mortal enemies. Within us, they give no quarter to each other. And if you're a Christian, give no quarter to your flesh. They're opposed to each other. They have absolutely antithetical goals and desires. So the question is, which one do we rely on? Which one do we trust? Minute by minute, which one do we depend on? Which one are we allowing instinctively to direct the course of our lives and, and to walk according to? Are we becoming habitually marching to the beat of the Spirit? Or are we addicted habitually to marching according to the beat of our flesh? 
Again, the answer is defined by the kinds of stuff that goes on in our hearts and in our lives. That's the diagnostic. So walking by the Spirit involves our will in some way, right? And the things that we do. First and foremost, we, we must desire to be connected to the power of the Spirit, to the vine of Christ. Because if we don't, we're going we're gonna to desire to be driven by the desires of our flesh. And there are some things that we have to do for that desire to be coupled to Christ, to, to let it dominate our lives. So that's the how question. Well, how do I do this? But first, before we get to the how, we got to ask the why. Why is it so critically important for us to walk by the Spirit? And Paul gives us two sobering reasons, one in verse 16, the other in verse 18. Verse 16 is the incentive. Here's the carrot. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's a promise, not a command. It's a promise. The verb to carry out is not imperative there. It's it's not a command. It's a promised reality that if we walk by the Spirit of God, we will not carry out the, the, the fleshly desires that remain in us. That's a good promise. It's a good reason to walk according to the Spirit, right? And be led by the Spirit and be driven by His purposes and guidance and direction and power instead of by our own. It's the other side of the coin from what we saw in verse 22. The positives given. Being led by the Spirit means that the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in us. The negative is that therefore that which is opposed to the Spirit, that which is contrary to the Spirit's fruit, which which is the desires of the flesh, will not be gratified in us when we're walking by the Spirit, when we're being led by the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Those sinful, selfish, prideful, idolatrous desires are are going to be overwhelmed when we're walking by the Spirit. That's a promise when we're being led by the Spirit. We yield to temptation and we entertain sinful thoughts and attitudes and then we do sinful things when, instead of being led by the Spirit, we're walking in the flesh. Because there's warfare going on between the two. And that warfare is is such that our flesh is still arousing sinful passions and desires inside of us. And when we follow the lead of those desires instead of the Holy Spirit, that's when we carry out the desires of the flesh and do sinful things. Now think about what Paul means by flesh. He says that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And, And verse 17 that he says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They're in opposition. What is the flesh? Well, the Greek word flesh, sarks, means your body. That's how, it, that's how it first came to be used in Greek culture. It's the soft, fleshy parts of the physical human body. Over time, it comes to denote the, the body as a whole, the physical, material part of what a person is. And then the next step in Greek thought was that it came to define the whole person in terms of their their bodily existence and their natural desires. And in that sense alone, flesh isn't an intrinsically bad thing. The fact that we have bodies is not bad. The fact that our bodies have desires is not bad. God created us as living, feeling people with physical bodies out of the dust of the ground and proclaimed that it was good. But when Paul uses the word flesh, he's using it in the sense that that our natural desires associated with these bodies, our cravings, our impulses, our passions, are now originating out of our sinfulness. And so those desires are stained with sin to varying degrees, and some of them are entirely sinful. So for Paul, flesh doesn't just mean your physical body or your your natural human desires. It means the corruption of sin that's being manifested through those desires in your physical life, in your body. So, in essence then, for Paul, flesh in this context means all of the sin and evil that I am and that I'm capable of, apart from God's grace. And remember that at the The root level, the essence of sin is a rejection of God's authority and a commitment to self as final authority. 
It's a, it's a telling to God, you don't have permission to sit on the throne of my life because it's my throne to sit on. That's what sin is at the core. So when Paul talks about flesh here, he's talking about the sinful impulse to do it our way, to satisfy ourselves with anything but God's glory and God's mercy and God's holiness. So bearing all that in mind, look down at verse 24 where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And compare that with Galatians 2.20. You don't have to flip there, but that's where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So see, the flesh with its passions and desires that's crucified in chapter 5 is the is the me, is the I that's crucified in chapter 2. The flesh is the the central core self-absorbed me that, that feels and needs and desires, but that hates the idea of depending on God and Christ and God's mercy to satisfy my desires. I want to do it my way. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God and does not submit to God's law. That's the most basic mark of our flesh in our sinfulness is that it's self-serving and it's unsubmissive. So it's not surprising that verse 17 paints a picture of this war raging between our flesh that's opposed to God, that's hostile towards God and God's spirit. On the other hand, this is a massively profound struggle within us. And it's not just a struggle between explicitly wicked desires and explicitly righteous desires. It's ultimately a war between who rules my life. Is it me or is it the God who made me? Is it me or is it the Christ who lives in me, who controls my life? And so if you look in your life and you don't see a temptation to some great, glaring, obvious, heinous sin right here, right now, you're not struggling with some grievous or, or, or blatant form of wickedness in your life, you can't think that your flesh is not struggling against God's Spirit. Because what your flesh is going to do right now is go, look how good you are. And boom, you're struggling with pride. Your flesh is either going to turn to licentiousness and rampant immorality to satisfy itself, or it's going to turn to legalistic morality and self-righteousness and self-reliance and pride to satisfy itself. And both of those things are radically and drastically opposed to God's Spirit because both come from the flesh, which is hostile towards God. So if you're not aware of the ways in which your flesh struggles with and opposes God's spirit doesn't mean the struggle's not happening. It just means you're naive to it. Satan's tricked you and you've fallen prey to his deceptions. Unless you have reached sinless perfection and none of you have and neither have I, then there is plenty in our hearts to wage war against God's spirit every minute of every day. Don't think otherwise. But, other side of the coin, if you are aware of the profound struggle within you between flesh and spirit, that certainly doesn't make you an unbeliever. If you're saying, man, I've got a lot of flesh still warring within me, maybe that means I'm not even a Christian. I shouldn't have this much warfare happening. I shouldn't have this much sin remaining. It shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be a constant struggle. I'm here to tell you, and I think if we were able to get the Apostle Paul here standing next to me, he would tell you that it's the more mature you become as a Christian that sin bothers you more and more and more. Isn't that what Paul's saying in Romans 7? I hate it. Who's going to deliver me from this body of flesh? And all the ways that I keep doing the things I hate. Isn't it what he said at the, at the end of his ministry? 
that he's the chief of all the sinners. Present tense, present tense. Not I used to be, but I still am the person whose sin bothers me the most of all the sinners I know. A Christian is a person who is at war. That's what it means to be a Christian. At war and beat up and bloodied and bothered by the thing that you're at war with. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires and no temptations to sin. A Christian is not a person who never struggles and who never fails. A Christian is a person who when they fail, they get back up and they keep on fighting in the full armor of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Conflict in your soul is not an indication that you don't belong to God. I mean, we long for the day when there's no conflict, when our sin is done and fully destroyed and vanquished and no longer present. But that's not going to happen until the new heavens and the new earth. And until that day, there's something worse than the battle between flesh and spirit in your life, and that is no battle, which is the situation where flesh is just entirely dominating you and controlling you. And that means unbelief and death. Flesh controls the city and all the outposts of your life. If that's the situation, you don't belong to God. That's the life of an unbeliever whose heart is such that there's no struggle between the sinful flesh and the Spirit of God who indwells. So if your heart feels like a battlefield, it's a sign that you've been indwelt by God's Spirit and, and there's, there's cats and mice just going crazy in there. The measure is not whether or not you have sinful desires, it's whether or not you're at war with them. And that's the point this passage wants to highlight. And even more than that, not only the war, but much more importantly, the victory, right? That the Spirit promises. So verse 17 tells us about the war, but verse 16 tells us that by walking by the Spirit, we're not going to let the flesh win. We're not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the encouragement. As desperately hard as your sinful fleshly desires are for you to resist, they are absolutely no match for God's Spirit. Because He is the omnipotent God. And in fact, what Paul will go on to say to the Galatians later is that the victory of God's Spirit over our sinful fleshly desires, it's already been achieved which again doesn't mean that we don't have those desires, that, that the war doesn't continue, that we don't feel sinful temptations or impulses. What it means is that the doom of sin and the doom of our flesh is sure. There may be insurgencies after the capital city has been taken and victory has been declared, but the insurgencies will always be put down because they are no match for the conquering victor of the Holy Spirit who is God. And so the Christian life is just like guerrilla warfare, right? The flesh just doesn't give up. It keeps coming and flanking you and attacking you and you have to fight it back daily and you got to do it in the jungle and it's hard. But its doom is sure because its enemy is Almighty God Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself. So the only way to fight the flesh is by the Spirit. And that's what walking by the Spirit means. Live by His power and not your own. Lean not on your own understanding and your sinful desires will be crushed and then, and then bastions of fruitful righteousness will be established in your life which will become more and more unassailable. Walk by the Spirit positively because when we do, the flesh is being conquered and that's good and then verse 18 gives us the other side of the coin, the other reason why walking the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is crucial. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Again, that doesn't mean that we're free to live contrary to the law, against the law. It doesn't mean that God's law isn't relevant to us anymore. Doesn't mean that holiness doesn't matter, that obedience to God doesn't matter anymore. It just means that when we're led by the power of the locomotive of God's omnipotent Holy Spirit, we are sailing and cruising along the railroad track of the law as a joyful 
God-loving way of life. And we are not left to do what the sinful flesh wants to do in its impulse, which is, and this is John Piper's illustration, instead of cruising along the tracks being pulled by the locomotive, when we're being led by the flesh, what we want to do is, is try to pick up the tracks, tear them up out of the ground, the railroad tracks, and stand them up and point them into heaven and try to climb hand over hand on our own strength into God's presence and into God's pleasure and into God's favor. And that's a brutally impossible thing to do and a brutally impossible way to live that every other false religion insists is the way. When we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the punishment of the law, the curse of the law, or the oppression of the law because whatever the law requires the Holy Spirit produces. And namely, that is love from which everything else will flow. Love for God, love for others. It's the first fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned in verse 22, isn't it? It's the headwaters of all of the other spiritual fruit and of all righteousness in our life. It's why Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others if yourself. Everything else depends on that. If you truly love God and truly love others with the love of God, sin ain't happening and it will not dominate your life. The law of God demands perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. And the law of God threatens and guarantees eternal punishment if we fail at perfection. So to not be under the law because we're being led by the Spirit means that we never have to fear that punishment because the very things that God's law demands are popping out of us like fruit on the vine as the evidences of the Spirit's presence and power in us when we're being led by the Spirit. So, that's the why, right? Verse 16 tells us that we walk by the Spirit because the result is that the sinful, evil desires of the flesh are being conquered. And verse 18 says that on the other side of the coin, we walk by the Spirit because the holy, righteous fruits of God's Spirit are being established. And those are the reasons why walking by the Spirit and not by our own fleshly desires are so important and crucial and critical. Because that which opposes God's Spirit is crushed and conquered. And then that which comes from God's Spirit is created and cultivated. See? That's why. Which leads the, leaves us with the big million dollar question of, of how. Lastly, how do you walk by the Spirit? And we've probably all heard people speak of it in a passive way. Like, well, you, just, you need to allow the Spirit to lead you. You need to, I don't know, get into some meditative state where you're letting the Holy Spirit control you. But that's not what Paul says. He's, the, here is where he's issuing a straightforward command. We must walk by the Spirit. He's the one leading. He's the one supplying the power. But it is His work in us that bears the fruit. But we must walk by the Spirit if that's going to happen. So how do we do that? Well, if we put all of it together in our minds and in our hearts, the answer is really actually pretty simple and something that, that, that we're able to do on a day-by-day -day basis. We walk by the Spirit and we allow Him to lead and control us when we rest in God's promises and in God's presence in communion with Him so much that our hearts are satisfied and content in Him. You're with Him. Your mind and your heart are so full of the promises of God, the precious and very great promises, Peter says, that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And you're prayerfully communing with Him and confessing sin to Him and receiving assurance of pardon from Him and casting all your cares upon Him. And you're doing that so much that your heart is content in Him and you go, I don't need anything else. The world's got nothing to offer me that I need more than the precious and very great promises of Christ and Christ Himself. 
what He's done for me, what He's given to me, what I have and what I am in Him. See, that's, on the other side, the flesh exercises its power when we're not content with God and His will and His love and His work and what He's made us to be in Christ Jesus. And as soon as we take our eyes off of all of that, off of Him, what He's done for us, what He's promised us, as soon as we take our eyes off of it for a minute, our flesh does what it does best and looks for ways to content itself with something else other than God and His mercy. But the Spirit reigns over the flesh when we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. When Christ and His grace and His love are the objects of our focus, that's when Christ becomes the object of our desire. Focus leads to desire. That's just how it works in everything in life, right? If I eat a really big lunch and I'm super full and super satisfied and then I sit down and I start watching Food Network shows, guess what happens? I get hungry way too fast and I start craving food way too much. Whatever our focus is becomes what we desire. And through faith that looks upon Christ, God's Spirit will be conquering our fleshly desires and leading us into the fruits of righteousness. This is really everything that Paul proclaims in the whole book of Galatians. Up in verse 6 of chapter 5, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that means anything is faith working through love. Faith working through love. Genuine faith. So that means just being fixed and focused on Jesus in all His glory, all His holiness, all His righteousness, all His mercy, all His love. Genuine faith always produces love for Him. So if you're saying, I'm struggling to love Christ, well, how much time are you spending with Him? The man who spends 60 hours at work and not with his wife and kids and then goes and plays golf with his buddies all weekend and never spends time, and he goes, well, I just don't don't feel like I love him. Why do you think that is? You're never with them. Genuine faith produces love and gives us an appetite to savor God's strength and wisdom and glory rather than our own. And love, remember, is the fruit of God's Spirit. So when we put it together, love is what faith produces and love is a fruit of the Spirit. That just means that the way to walk by the Spirit is to have faith, to look upon the objects of faith, to rest in Christ and His work, all of the promises of God that are yes in Him. And then prayerfully and unceasingly, not not those times of of focused, fold the hands, close the eyes, or corporate prayer. Those are important too, but unceasing prayer. The driving down the road and going, I'm going to be late, what am I going to do? And, and instead of saying, well, I have to figure it out on my own, going, oh, God's with me. Maybe I should talk to Him about it. Ask for His help. Pray for patience and help, help not to be anxious and to get there on time or to have the wisdom to know how to handle it if I can't. That kind of unceasing prayer. Up in verse 5, Paul says that through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. When our hearts rest on God's promises, when we are content with God and His sovereign will and His gracious work, that's when we're waiting through the Spirit by faith and walking by the Spirit. See, it's all through Galatians. In, up in chapter 3, Paul says in verse 23, Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law. And what he means is that the coming of faith liberated a person from being under the burden and condemnation of the law of God by resting, by by faith in what Jesus has done to redeem us. We're freed from the burden of having to free ourselves, of having to earn God's favor by our own obedience. But Paul also says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. See? See how it works? How do we seek to be led by the Spirit? 
by faith, simply that, by faith, by meditating on the faithfulness and the trustworthiness and the preciousness of God and His love and His promises, everything that He's done to redeem us, everything that the only begotten Son is and has done to lift our impossible burden off of us and give Himself up for us and pay the price for us in order to deliver us from the wrath of God that is to come until our hearts are free from fear and guilt and pride and greed. That's how the Spirit leads us, through faith. As we drink deeply from God's Word. Faith doesn't just happen when you're sitting around focused on worldly things and your own fleshly desires. Faith happens through the means by which God creates it, by which God strengthens it, by which God grows it, through the living, active Word which transforms our lives by renewing our minds constantly. This is how it works. Drink deeply from God's Word and commune regularly with your great Savior. Listen to chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul says, Does He, God, does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, by things you, you're capable of doing in your life? Or does he do it by hearing with faith? God works through faith. We're justified by faith, are we not? And so Paul is also saying that the, the very wellspring source of sanctification is also faith in him who loved us and gave himself up for us. If you're trying to forge holiness and sanctification in your life on your own and by your own strength, and not through faith and love and gratitude, you're going to fail. You're pulling up the tracks instead of cruising along behind the locomotive. The way to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh is to hear and meditate on the precious and magnificent promises of God. you got to contemplate them. you got to meditate on them. you got to trust them. you got to delight in them. you got to savor them. you got to rest in them. And you have to rest in Him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's how Paul's lived. He, he says, even the life that I now live in the flesh still, in this body where sin remains still, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Day by day, minute by minute, choice by choice, situation by situation, temptation by temptation, put your trust, your hope, and your confidence in Christ. Cast your cares on Him. Look to Christ and the promises that are yours in Christ. When you fail and sin and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin and you're looking at self and seeing the sin and feeling the shame and the guilt and hating it, then Robert Murray McShane says, now take ten looks at Christ. Every look at self, ten looks at Christ. I'm a sinner, you have to say ten times, but he is a great Savior. But he is a great, say, over and over and over again. And so the, the answer to how, how do we live by the Spirit, walk by, it's a, this is an, a plain answer, right? We, we stop trying to content ourselves and feel, fill our lives with what we want and with what the world has to offer, and we put our souls at rest in God. Is your soul at rest in God? Is your soul truly satisfied in Christ alone? If He gives me nothing else in this life, if I only ever have pain and suffering and loss and disappointment in this world, until glory, I'm satisfied because I have Christ. How do you do that? The Holy Spirit works to supernaturally sanctify our lives and change our hearts and change our desires and tear the sin away from us and to grow righteousness in us when our minds and hearts are fixed on and meditating on the unfathomable riches of Christ, the magnificent promises of Christ, the lavish grace and un 
plumbable love of Christ and resting in them. He is my portion. He's all I need. And that comes through the living active word. Yes, read it. And also let it hide in your heart and circulate in your mind. Yes, absolutely take songs that are written to express the brilliant truths of God's word and listen to them constantly so that when you wake up, those words are just rolling through your mind, which is one of the things that God gave us music to accomplish. To lock into our brains the truth of God's word. And prayer without ceasing, consistent, regularly, life-characterizing communion with Christ and with the living word of God. That's what it means. Rest in Him. Don't rest in yourself or your desires or the things this world has to offer or whatever your flesh craves. Rest in Christ. Saturate your mind with His truth. Spend more time in prayerful communion with Him than you spend communing with your own thoughts and feelings and desires. Content your hearts with Him and He will continue to lead you and to transform you. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, it seems so simple and yet it's so hard for us and elusive to us. And the reason is because we're sinful still. It remains in us. And we hearken to those old habits all the time. And we're weak and we're needy. And so Father, we're here today to confess all of that and to acknowledge that you know it already and that your son died for it and that his death is sufficient and that so is his grace. And you're here to lavish that grace upon us through the word. And even as we lift our voices and our minds and our, our hearts up to you to sing your praises and as we come to the table, Father, we come praying, fill us, feed us, strengthen us, change us, sanctify us. In Jesus' name, amen.